desires. We all have them. Secretly, I think there's a part in all of us that hope to be known and recognized and admired by our peers, and there's nothing wrong with that, except when it leads to problems and a lot of unhappiness. When we find ourselves chasing endlessly after things like status or maybe wealth and material goods, that's when the problem happens. And you see people who are multi-billionaires and yet who are still driven individuals. And in many cases, don't seem like particularly happy or fulfilled indi individuals. They have a ton of stuff, and yet they still want more. My guest today is William Irvin, an American philosopher and the author of a series of very popular books on Stoicism, an ancient philosophy of life that aims to reduce the negative emotions and maximize positive emotions to help us live happier and better lives. Now, stoicism, unlike what most people think, is not about having no emotions, but it's about trying to reduce the negative emotions to make room for more positive emotions and more joy. Now, although Dr. Irvin was a philosophy professor, he wasn't interested in stoic philosophy right away. He told me that he stumbled upon it by accident after a personal crisis 20 years ago. I was turning 50 and had a, a low-grade midlife crisis and decided I was going to become a Zen Buddhist. It was quite a crisis, but in the end, he didn't need to shave his head because he found a better fix to his problems in Stoicism. First time since college logic class, I stumbled across the Stoics again, and I realized, gosh, you know, they're both working on the same problem, and yet coming up with radically different solutions for attainment of a goal. And what's the goal? Equanimity, tranquility. So the insight of the Buddhists and the insight of Stoics is there's another solution. Instead of working hard to get the thing you want so you can be satisfied, spend that time and energy working to appreciate the things you've already got. On today's show, we're going to learn how to cure our insatiable desire for more. Whether that's a bigger title at work, more book sales, a larger paycheck, the list goes on. And we'll let you in on the stoic secret to joyful living. Hi everyone, it's your host Cici here. You're listening to Wiser Living, a podcast whose goal is to help you live your best life by providing you with ideas and tools from some of the wisest people in the world. Now, if you haven't already, go to my website cc-wang.com. That's s-i-s-s-i-w-a-n-g.com to check out past episodes I've put together on various topics to help you navigate through your current life challenge. Be sure to also follow Wiser Living Podcast on Instagram and Facebook to get notified to new episodes and to stay in touch with us. All right, today I've got one of the wisest people I've ever met teaching us strategies on how to stop chasing after the next best thing, tame our endless desires, and attain a more joyful life. Let's admit it: most of us are slaves to our desires, and spend too much time and energy chasing after things which make us absolutely miserable and unable to enjoy the present. My guest, Dr. William Irvin, here argues that if we can convince ourselves to want what we already have, then we can dramatically enhance our happiness. He's the author of the best-selling book *A Guide to the Good Life: The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy*, and a teacher on American philosopher and podcast host Sam Harris's popular app *Waking Up*. Now, I've never studied philosophy or read any philosophy books. To be honest, I'm a little bit intimidated by them. 
but I have thoroughly enjoyed Dr. Irvin's books, A Guide to the Good Life and On Desire, which are geared toward a general audience. So don't worry, you'll be able to get the concepts right away. It's well written, easy to get, and incredibly insightful and helpful. I think you're really going to enjoy the following conversation we had and take lots away from it to help you kickstart a more joyful lifestyle today. And here's our conversation. Welcome, Professor Irvin, on our show. And uh, I look so much forward to talking to you today about what it means to live a fulfilling life. Um, so, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thank you for uh, for the invitation. You know what? I'm I uh, I woke up this morning. I had breakfast, and then I'm I'm getting to spend the day doing things I want to do. So uh, so it's a good life as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So you certainly sound like you have figured out what it means to live a good life, and you're practicing it. So tell me, what is your daily routine? <laughs> okay, I've thought a lot about living a good life, and I know it's it's the kind of thing that you have to keep your your eye on. In, in other words, it's like practicing a musical instrument. If you don't kind of do it every day, then it's just not you're you're not only not going to get better, but you're going to start going downhill. So um, my day, I, I'm a, an extreme early riser. I'm normally up at 4 a.m. and uh, normally sound asleep at at 8 p.m. within minutes after my head hits the pillow. So, um, and the days now, I retired uh, last December. So I retired from teaching. I still write. So my days are. Um, uh, usually at least four hours a day spent uh, writing. And by writing, I don't mean reading. I don't mean rereading. I mean writing, which is uh, intellectually uh, demanding to do on a good day, six hours. But then there's also a lot, bunch of play mixed in. Um, so I've uh, been getting things done around the house. I'm, I'm married and um, time to, to spend doing activities with my wife, which uh, is wonderful. Uh, watching lots and lots of documentaries, uh, uh, watching more YouTube than I ever imagined I would, because <laughs> they just have some great specialized yeah. stuff on on that. Um, and I, I guess pretty much, uh, pretty much a happy camper uh, to mm -hmm. the extent that that uh, that goes. So certainly a busy life. What are your hobbies outside of work and writing? Um, I, I like to cook. Uh, I row uh, semi-competitively. Uh, mm -hmm. I did not compete this season. Uh, so by rowing, I don't. I mean uh, in a skull. This is a very tippy, narrow little boat. This is with oars, not with paddles. So it's not canoeing. It's not kayaking. And it's not sweep rowing where you have like eight people and then they get only one uh, oar each. So uh, uh, I'm a rower, and in the off-season, I use uh, a rowing machine known as an erg. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a fairly active cyclist and uh, have gotten into taking long walks and uh, have very much enjoy travel mm. uh, because <laughs> it reached the stage where, you know, it's dawned on me that I've spent my life saving for uh, for my old age and that my old age is here. Mm -hmm. And that means I don't have to save for my old age anymore. <laughs> I can to live it. <laughs> yeah, I can. I can. I can spend money in a way that I never dreamed I would before. But for me, stuff really doesn't matter. Uh, stuff mm -hmm. is negligible. Uh, experiences are what counts, and travel. 
You come home with, you see new things, you've been exposed to new cultures, new ideas, you've got stories to tell. So of the ways you can spend money, that's, as far as I can tell, that's the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. So you're a philosophy professor. Um, Why did you choose to pursue philosophy and end up teaching it eventually? And how did that lead you to write the series of books you did on The Good Life? Um, I got into, well, I didn't even know philosophy existed until my senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. When I simultaneously discovered Bertrand Russell because of a documentary about him uh, on uh, on PBS American uh, you know public television, mm-hmm. and I I, I read uh, Henry David Thoreau's um, uh, Walden Pond uh, or Walden as he called it, and thought, okay, this is really neat stuff, and in particular Thoreau, and so he's talking about how to live a good life. And I want to live a good life. And then I thought, so uh, that's what I'll do. I'll go away to college and I'll I'll take uh, philosophy. Uh, uh, Although I didn't uh, initially uh, declare, well, you know, first you take all of your your, uh, general courses that you can take. Um, And early on, it became apparent that in the philosophy uh, courses I was taking, we weren't doing Henry David Thoreau. We weren't talking about having a good life. Those were issues that simply weren't raised. And I asked, well, why is that? And I was informed that that isn't what philosophy is about, that what we do is analytical philosophy. Um, so the Stoics, which in the last 20 years have captured my, my life and my uh, approach to life, I did encounter them in college, but I encountered them in a logic class, not in a philosophy class, because they were the inventors of propositional logic, which is the kind that computers use, the logic of uh, and, or, you know, if, if then, uh, and, uh, and so on. So they were the um, first century AD masters of propositional logic. And if you wanted to stretch it a bit, you could say, they invented the computer. But that, that, <laughs> that like I say, that would be a, a bit of a stretch. So um, I was disappointed that that's what I would be doing if I uh, went on in philosophy. But um, nevertheless, thought uh, it sounded like a, like a fun game because you, you got to you got to, you know, you got to debate the other students. Um, it seemed like if you could get a job doing it, it would be a good thing to do. But I was also interested in physics, and because I was interested in physics, I was interested in math. Uh, the physics part, uh, it becomes harder and harder the further you get into it. And uh, so maybe my junior year, I decided I would drop the physics. So I had a double major going for a while. Uh, in uh, physics and philosophy. So dropped the physics part and then thought, because I'd been told this would be in the mid-1970s, that it was extremely difficult to get a job in philosophy. Mm. Still is. <laughs> it's just been this this uh, this uh, difficult market for, what, half a century now. Mm. Uh, and uh, then decided, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get rid of... Um, the physics major, but but keep, but then replace it with a math major, double ma- a major in math and philosophy, so that I could 
if the philosophy thing fell through, I could sell myself as a math major. Because if you go up to an employer and say, well, I'm a philosophy major, you know, that they think, ah, well, you know, is he going to be sitting around all day wondering whether his hand <laughs> is a human hand? Uh, is he going to be asking how how high is up? Is he going to be doing that? Because we don't need that. Uh, but But I could hide it behind the math major. Ah, well, he's a math major, so he must know how to think. Uh, so I ended up with a double major, uh, got into a, a, a good uh, graduate school, UCLA, in, in philosophy, so uh, decided to pursue the philosophy PhD, came out uh, 1980, got a few one-year jobs, you know, where you're just visiting somebody else's away doing mm. something, and so you take over them came within inches of dropping out of philosophy, but then uh, found a job at uh, Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, and that's where I spent the next uh, 38 and a half years. Uh, and in retrospect, it was a good home for me because it allowed me, well, you do the kind of the analytic stuff just so you can get publications, just so you can, you know, stick around, get tenure, advance, and then I finally became a full professor. And there is no promotion beyond that. Uh, so, uh, and then as full professor, I thought, you know what, I am one of the freest human beings ever to, to roam the earth. Um, <laughs> as a philosopher, I'm paid to think about a wide range of things. As, um, as a tenured philosopher, uh, I have job safety. Although at my university, it turns out that uh, well, we had a retrenchment, so there are a whole bunch of tenured people who were laid off, which is unfortunate. Mm, wow. But uh, I had job safety, so what was I going to do with this wonderful situation I found myself in? And I decided I was going to start writing not technical articles, but books aimed at an intellectually upscale general audience that would uh, take people who had never read a word of philosophy and thought that it would be uh, unreadable. And then I simply wrote books, um, st uh, starting with On Desire, in fact, uh, which that was I think a great book. came out in, in 2004-ish or 06-ish. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because, because I realized that uh, what I got to do is spend my days thinking about things I wanted to think about and then writing about them to people I thought would benefit from knowing about them. So that's what I've been doing for basically uh, the last 20 years. And despite my retirement from teaching, I continue to do. And in fact, I still do teach by doing podcasts like this. It's a, a form of the teaching. And of course, the books are, are another form of teaching. The beauty is there will be nobody asking me is this going to be on the midterm exam, <laughs> right? And if you teach in the classroom, uh, that's what you get. Well, thank you for choosing to write those books because for me, I feel like um, it's something that's missing in society. These um, insights and wisdom on how exactly should we be approaching our life and what should we be focusing on. So it was so refreshing to see somebody out there who has given real thoughts into these questions that I think a lot of people do struggle with and to um, turn it into a book, a very readable book <laughs> that we can all benefit from. So for your book on desire, what made you decide to start with that topic? Okay, well, 
let's see, I was turning 50 and had a, a low-grade midlife crisis and oh. decided I was going to become a Zen Buddhist. I did other things as well. That's sort of when I took up rowing, I gave the banjo a try, my first musical instrument uh, <laughs> ever, but yeah. I decided I was going to become a Zen Buddhist. And mm -hmm. then it dawned on me that I could actually do two things. Uh, the research I was doing for Zen Buddhism could become a book. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, uh, Buddhists have, have their own idea of what's involved in a good life. And I thought, uh, okay, so that's down my alley. I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. But then I thought uh, I could turn this into a book. And um, the book, uh, in order to be complete, so what I was going to say is, okay, here's what the Buddhists say, but there are other people who give you different uh, kinds of uh, uh answers to the question of what do you have to do to have a good life. And that's where, first time since college logic class, I stumbled across the Stoics again. And I realized, gosh, you know, they're both working on the same problem, and yet coming up with radically different solutions for attainment of a goal. And what's the goal? Equanimity, tranquility. Tranquility is a dangerous word to use because people can get the wrong idea. And what is equanimity? Uh, basic freedom from negative emotions, which are those. They're the ones that don't feel good. They're like uh, envy, anger, grief, regret. Uh, you go through the list. Uh, but they had nothing against positive emotions, like moments of delight, like a sense of awe about the world and your place in it. Uh, and best of all, moments of joy. Um, and so a lot of people think the Stoics were anti-emotion, but they weren't. They were anti-negative emotion, yeah. which any sensible person would be. Uh, and the other thing I did in the book on desire is I, um, I, I looked into evolutionary psychology and then realized, you know, people have these desires, where do they come from? And you ask most people and you'll say, well, it's what I wanted. You know, I thought about it, and then I decided I wanted, and then this new car, or right, this new cell phone, or whatever. And the interesting thing is, if you watch yourself, you realize that uh, you don't choose your desires; they choose you. Yeah. Uh, so there's one uh, thing now. Whenever I I get an audience in enough time to do it, I I, I try to have them do a, z a zazen meditation, and. Simple as can be. You don't have to shave your your head. You don't have to go off to a cave. What you have to do is, is sit still and let your mind uh, go empty. And uh, it sounds so easy to do, uh, but try doing it, and you'll make some very important discoveries. And one of them is what a restless place your mind is. Your mind has a um, primary thing that happens is uh, the future pops into your mind, thoughts about the future. So you'll be having sitting there quietly with an empty mind, then you'll realize, oops, I'm thinking about dinner tonight. What am I going to have for dinner? And then you'll return to your empty mind mode. And then a few uh, seconds after that, you'll realize you're thinking about something mean somebody said the day before. So that's a past thing. So, you know, there's that, that puzzle. Why, why do we never live uh, in the moment? And the answer is because our uh, evolutionary ancestors who lived in the moment 
they perished. <laughs> they didn't think about what they were going to have for dinner. Uh, they didn't think about their standing in the tribe. They didn't think about uh, the, the dangers uh, that they had experienced in life. So it's wired into us. Now, it isn't wires, of course, and like copper wires. It's neurons. We've uh, developed, uh, we've adapted to life on the savannas of Africa 200,000 years ago. And, you know, you can pick the number, but... Uh, so we're very good at surviving that environment. But the thing mm -hmm. is, we don't live in that environment anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. Our danger is not uh, being able to find food to eat, at least not in um, almost all of America. The danger is overeating once again uh, on our, our next uh, meal. So what uh, was wiring that worked very well 100,000 years ago now is counterproductive. Uh, and uh, back then, to want more was a good thing, because if you were satisfied, easily satisfied, hey, I've got one potato or whatever it would be they <laughs> ate, and you know, that's, that's pretty good, and so I should be satisfied with that. Whereas somebody else who said, well, I got one potato, but you never know, so maybe I need to get some more potatoes. Uh, and, um, and then before you, but, but that's what, we're still wired to do that. Whatever we've got, we want more. So, uh, and, uh, and we're never satisfied as a result. So you can have the thing that you dreamed of, have, of having come true, and you will be happy, satisfied, but it won't last. And I've been watching myself do this. See, I wrote a book on this and I've been watching myself and, you know, there'll be something I've worked very hard to get. And then I finally get it. And then I watch, you know, I can almost start a stopwatch. Yeah. Right, to count I mean, the how time. long does the effect last? The joy, the It's a matter euphoria. of minutes. So let me Seriously. tell you, let oh. me tell you a quick story. Well, it can vary. It can vary from time to time. I know when I got my first book published, uh, I was uh, just, uh, you know, walking on air for two days. Yeah. You know, just it was such a, a good thing. So uh, recently, now this is going to sound like uh, a boast, and it probably is, but I'm going to I'm going to go anywhere anyway. So um, you know, if you sell books and they're sold on Amazon, you can look at their rank and you can see where they are. And the lower the rank number, the better. So one meant that you're the number one best selling book on Amazon. Uh, so I did a, a, a podcast interview, and it sold a whole bunch of books. And so I'm watching uh, its Amazon ranking and, you know, it's, it's falling. It's 10,000. Well, that's pretty kind of good. Uh, uh, 5,000. Gee, 2,000. Whoa. 1,000. Wow. You know, <laughs> 500. Oh, wow. I've never been this low. Remember, low equals good. Yep. Then I got to 100 and it would have been the wildest thing, unimaginable success, and then I checked again the next hour, and it had started up going up again. So what happened? So during that hour, when they refreshed their own internal thing, yeah. uh, that was as good as it got. And my very first thought was, man, it would have been nice to break into double digits. <laughs> and, and at 99, <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And now when I do that, it's not only disappointing, but it's also maddening because I should know better. And yeah. yet, th there you go. Like we always want to do better than whatever achievement we've just <laughs> made. Yeah. 
And it just sets the new platform for how we how we envision things. And it's true with the car you drive, the phone you own, the house you own, if you own a house, your your current uh, uh, partner, uh, you know, you always think at first, it's like, I'm, it's the man or woman of my dreams. Ah, oh, this is great. And that lasts for a while. And then you start thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could do better than this. So that insatiability, yeah. and, and that means... You're living in a steady state of dissatisfaction, broken by moments of satisfaction. But and the the the, the Stoics realize that the Buddhists actually reach the same conclusion. So there there have been a number of uh, philosophical schools in the past that realize that. But guess what? Average people they just don't see that. They think, yeah. ah, I've got a desire, so what am I going to be? I'm going to be unhappy until that's fulfilled, and then I will live happily ever after. And if they only looked around them, they'd realize it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. But even knowing this, it's hard to stop wanting things, don't you find? I mean, you've been practicing Stoicism for a while now. How do you, how do you deal with your desires now? I, I'm a lot, uh, I'm suspicious of them. I don't mm -hmm. embrace them. The fact that I find a desire within me uh, anymore, it's just, huh, how'd that get there? You know, it's okay. like, uh, it's, it's like uh, you know, if you find a bunch of leaves in your garage, huh, how'd they get there? Huh, I must have left the garage door open or, or that uh -huh. would, wouldn't have happened. Uh, so I'm much more control mm -hmm. of my desires. Well, and also uh, with the process of, of aging, uh, the background engines of desire have slowed down, thank God, you know, because, uh, uh, I, I mean, I know as a young person, you are just a desire engine. You have all these things you want. And then as you go on in life and, and then you realize, you know, the things that I wanted to accomplish, I, I kind of pretty much have. Um, I've had a a very successful long-term uh, relationship with another person. I have kids, which was something I wanted to have. Uh, do I have stuff? I got enough stuff. Now, you know, the, the point is, let's see if I can get rid of uh, a bunch of this stuff. Uh, and uh, so in that sense, it's it's gotten easier. I was really, I was very good at lockdown. Remember lockdown <laughs> two years yeah, ago? Yeah, 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 okay. Uh, I was very good at lockdown. What did uh -huh. it mean? It meant that I had to uh, sit here in my office and spend lots of time because there uh, couldn't go out, couldn't do things on the outside. Um, uh, meant I couldn't go to restaurants. I had to cook for myself. Well, I like to cook. Uh, and I like simple meals. So you know, it kind of worked. Whereas uh, I, I sense, just from what I read, a lot of other people found it a, a brutally punishing that they couldn't do all these things that they wanted to do. But with me, it was sort of like, I'm fine doing them, but I'm okay not doing them as well. Wow. That's probably a, an indication that you've, um, you're a real stoic. <laughs> I've made progress, but, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a practice and it's like music. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you have to do? You have to practice, practice, practice. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get there? No. You know, you never make it there. Uh, and if you think you have, then you need some work. You still need some work. And you backslide. You get you get really good and then you you get distracted. And then you realize you're you're behaving foolishly again.
Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about what does it mean to adopt a Stoic philosophy in life? Okay, Stoics, uh, as we said, they're uh, not opposed to emotion. They're opposed to mm -hmm. uh, negative emotions. In fact, uh, the ancient Stoics had a reputation for being an unusually cheerful bunch of people, which is uh, shocking. No, they're just supposed to stand there and be glum, aren't they? Well, no, uh, they were against negative emotions. They embraced positive emotions. And the other important thing to realize about the Stoics is, yes, they were philosophers, but they were the uh, predominant psychologists of the first century uh, AD. These are the Roman Stoics. And so they came up with all of these really great psychological insights about how, I mean, the key thing is instead of just always forming this endless chain of desires, in which case you're on this hedonic treadmill, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you work as hard as you can to, to fulfill a desire, and then what do you do? Ah, start taking it for granted, and you're back on the treadmill try, trying to find the next uh, desire. So they said that, uh, uh, and I, I, I call this the gap theory of happiness, okay? Why are people unhappy? Because what they have it does not match what they want. Now, if this were visual at this point, I would hold up my hands. So my left hand's low, my right hand's high. My left hand is what I have, my right hand... Uh, is what I don't yet have but want, okay? So most people do the obvious solution. What do they do? They work really hard so they get what they want. So you, the left hand rises to the level of the right hand. And then they think, I will be happy. I will be satisfied. And it's true. They are for a while. But then the gap opens up again. Only, of course, this time, the right hand is even higher. It's a bigger gap than it previously was. So what do they do? Same procedure. Work hard to get what they found themselves wanting. And it just never ends. There is no natural end to it. And you see people who are multi-billionaires and yet who are still driven individuals. And in many cases, don't seem like particularly happy or fulfilled indiv individuals. They have a ton of stuff, and yet they still want more. So the insight of the Buddhists and the insight of Stoics is there's another solution. Instead of working hard to get the thing you want so you can be satisfied, spend that time and energy working to appreciate the things you've already got. It's easier to do. Number one, you've already got them, okay? And so what you have to do is you have to, to do a variety of strategies to make yourself say, you know what, what I've got is actually pretty good. Yeah, I could have more, but then well, what would I need? I'd need more. And that's a, that's a fool's game. Um, or I can just say, you know what, I'm going to learn to appreciate what I've already got. Uh, so that was the insight. And that was the striking thing to me when I, uh, you know, I told you I was out to become a Zen Buddhist and I realized, oh, they see the same problem, this gap theory of happiness. They just came up with two radically different ways to deal with it. Uh, so the Stoics, it's appreciate what you've already got. With, uh, with a Zen Buddhist, it means doing um, massive amounts of meditation, which might or might not yield the end result of satisfaction. Uh, so, so for me, Stoicism just had a really low 
uh, price of admission. You could test drive it, right? So you can use their strategies and you'll know in a matter of days whether they're making a difference in your life or not. Zen Buddhist, you know, if you if you go to a Zen master, he might say, eh, give it a few years or maybe even decades. You might have your moment of enlightenment. Maybe not, though, but you, you keep trying. So of the two, it just seemed... Um, easier way to go. So uh, I, I took the Stoic path. How do we learn to appreciate what we do have? The Stoics were very practical-minded individuals. They came up with specific psychological strategies you could use uh, for how to stay satisfied, how to become and then remain satisfied with things that you already had. Um, one of those is uh, what I call negative visualization. So what you do is you spend time, you make a point of periodically imagining that something that you have uh, has disappeared from your life. Uh, and that's easy to do. It's a kind of meditation-like, but it, it takes uh, a minute max, right? So it's not sort of like, okay, I want you to sit and contemplate for a half hour. Uh, no, no, no. And, and you can do it uh, in, in even uh, less time than that. So, well, first of all, you think about something you've got in your life, and uh, there's just a variety of things you can pick. It can be your job, it can be your home, uh, it can be your relationships, it can be your health, it can be your eyesight, it can be your ability to smell things, you know, and there's a really long list. Uh, in my case, one of the things uh, I've been thinking about lately is how lucky I am to have been born with English as my first language. It means I can travel large parts of the world and walk up to people. I know it's just a terrible, crass thing to do, but walk up to people and just ask in English. And it's astonishing how many people uh, will are able to answer. Uh, and I have uh, given a serious shot to five different languages. Uh, and uh, the only one that's really stuck, there's a bit of Spanish remaining and then English. So I, I just don't have a talent for that. So uh, th there are a bunch of things. Uh, okay, here's more things uh, to think about that where you live, I hope this is true. There isn't random gunfire at night. Mm -hmm. I hope that where you live, the power stays on, the electrical power stays on. There aren't intermittent blackouts or periods where they turn the power off. Um, I hope you have drinking water, you know? It's, it's, there's this mm -hmm. whole list of things, which um, most of your listeners have. It's just they take it utterly for granted. So mm -hmm. pick something from that very long list and imagine that uh, you lost it. All of those things are things that you can lose. In fact, all of those things are things you will lose because someday you're going to die. Mm -hmm. In which case, all of those relationships, uh, all of those things you enjoy, they're no longer going, uh, going to be possible. So uh, how, do you, how do you imagine losing them? Uh, well, uh, uh, the way I put it is you allow yourself to have a flickering thought about them being absent from your life. So if you want to, you can fill it in with a little bit of imaginative thinking. Uh, you can imagine, you know, picking up the phone uh, and uh, a call and somebody saying, okay, are you, are you, and then they give your name, and they say, because we've got some bad news for you. And then it's somebody you love or a friend who has been in a terrible accident. 
And now quit doing that. Now get back to life. Because uh, here's the important thing. You don't dwell on bad things that can happen. You have flickering thoughts about them. Because if you do that, there's a good chance that it will, for a time, it'll change your attitude toward the person in question, you know, uh, or your ability to smell, right? And so there were people who in COVID lost that ability for a while. And next time you smell something, you'll sort of say, you know, this is great. Uh, one way I've been doing for audiences, the negative visualization exercises, I have people close their eyes. And then I say, now, I want you to imagine that when you try to open them again, they are sealed shut so that they will never open again. So you will never see the world around you. And you know, when people finally do then open their eyes, it's sort of like this gasping for air when you've been Ooh. underwater and they realize, look at all this, all of this stuff that I can see and it's in color and I've got depth perception and isn't that great and yet... Uh, I've taken it for granted all my life. Of course, unless you were born blind, in which case mm -hmm. you couldn't take it for uh, granted all, all your life. So uh, you can do it with uh, just about anything and you will for a time be content, be appreciative mm -hmm. of the thing you formerly took for granted, but it'll wear off. It will wear off, but it's mm -hmm. like a medication where the label says, use as needed. <laughs> There's no such thing as mm -hmm. doing too much mm -hmm. of that exercise. Now, again, you don't dwell on bad things, but you have thoughts about them. Uh, and there's no such thing as too much. And you might find that uh, uh, it, it, it helps you resist the, the new desires that are going to be flooding into your head. Because you're going to say, you know, I kind of like what I already got. So yeah, I could, I could work really hard and save a bunch of money and get a Tesla, but you know, my Honda's doing just fine. And for that matter, my bike will take me many of the places I want to go. So I'm okay. There are people on hearing that who will say, yeah, but you shouldn't be satisfied with that. You should want more. That's crazy talk. Because what they're saying is, you should go out of your way to become dissatisfied when a life of satisfaction is in your grasp, if only you will change the way you're thinking. Yeah. A lot of it, when I read your book, um, comes down to controlling our thoughts, essentially. You can't control them, but you can get greater control over mm -hmm. them. I mean, mm -hmm. I know, it, I know um, they're called intrusive thoughts. Yeah. I have lots of them if I'm awake at two in the morning because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want nothing better than to fall back asleep. And yet, and it's stupid stuff. It's the most stupid stuff, but it just intrudes into mm -hmm. my mind. Uh, so you can't control it, but uh, you can certainly uh, do things that will uh, will lessen it. Meditation is, uh, is one thing. And uh, so you do what you can, you know, you do what you can. Mm-hmm. So as with anything else in life, it really is something that you need to practice to really gain the benefits. Yes, you need to. But, but, but negative visualization, and again, what did it do? It took me three minutes to tell you yeah. what it is. So it isn't mm -hmm. sort of like you're going to have to spend a month in a monastery and you will emerge knowing this precious uh, technique. No, I've, I've just explained it. And then uh, it's a question of you test driving it. Mm 
Give it a try and see if it makes a difference. I now do it almost habitually. It's interesting. So I'm that far along because I'll be I'll be walking uh, outside. Well, we're in November now, but uh, we had one of my favorite uh, annual events, and that is um, uh, blue sky on an October day. Because okay. all the trees have their color, and you get to see it against the blue sky. And I will just stand there looking and be astonished. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just amazing? Yeah, while the people walking with me are checking their cell phones and doing other things. Whereas I've kind of raised my own level uh, of uh, satisfaction and happiness that comes comes with it through that simple technique. Mm-hmm. But are there times when the intrusive thoughts that are you know unhelpful leads you to negative thinking, just gets too much that you can't do anything to counteract against it? Uh, it in the short run, yes, there are. To answer your question, yes, there are. There are intrusive thoughts that uh, that are are routine visitors, you know. Mm, and again, yeah. when I'm uh, up at two uh, two in the morning, you know, they just come back and they say, "Oh, he's awake. Let's <laughs> let's drop in uh, drop in for uh, for a visit." Uh, and I think that's just a part of the human. Uh, experience. And mm-hmm. lately, uh, so what I do is uh, just try to uh, try to distract my thinking. Mm-hmm. I've lately been uh, been trying um, uh, meditation, you know, just sit there and pay attention to your body, the feelings of your body, your breath, uh, and mm-hmm. so on, just to get back uh, sleep. Uh, during the day, for the most uh, part, I, I've got too many things to think about that I don't have time for intrusive yep. thoughts. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there are people who dwell on things. Um, they um, same intrusive thought over and over all day long, every day. Uh, and that is, uh, is unhealthy. So the Stoics, uh, uh, their basic kind of, they assume rationality. Mm-hmm. There are people who have mental illness. There are people who are deeply depressed. And if uh, one of them went to a stoic and said, okay, I'm deeply depressed, what do I do? They would say, go see a doctor, a real okay. doctor, a medical <laughs> doctor. Yeah. Because chances are, uh, it's a physical thing going on, a chemical thing. And it would be like going to uh, a stoic and saying, oh, I broke my leg. Yeah, they what do you guys do about it? That's not our that's not our department. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So in terms of, you know, desire, we talked about success, fame, fortune, all those things that in North American society are valued. But the Stoics would say those things are not valuable. So what would the Stoics say are the things that we should be pursuing and desiring in our life that would lead to a good life? Uh, you should be pursuing equanimity. And that is uh, the relative absence of negative emotions in an abundance of positive emotions. Okay. Uh, so it's 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 an interesting thing. It's loosely connected with your external world. It's uh, you know uh, with what you own, what you have, where you live, what you eat, um, and then the whole social thing. What other people think of you? Uh, we're wired once again yeah. to care very much about what other people think of us and our standing in whatever tribe that we're in. And that's because our evolutionary ancestors who, who didn't care about that, 
they were the last ones to 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 eat, the last ones to mate. You know, they they didn't have a sufficient standing, and uh, so they dropped out of the evolutionary equation. Uh, you have ancestors. I mean, we're we're talking going back thousands of generations, ancestors who were obsessive about their social standing. And so for for you to think, hey, you know what? Just with a, a few uh, uh, days of thought, I can overcome that. That would be like you saying, you know what? Although all of my ancestors breathe, I don't think I need to. I think I can quit breathing. Good luck with that, you know, because <laughs> uh, it's just wired into you, uh, the need. But so you can't overcome it. But you can manage it. And one thing is to recognize it for what it is. Uh, so I've uh, routinely uh, wrestle with my ego. My ego mm-hmm. uh, cares very much about these things. And my ego, unfortunately, is an idiot. <laughs> and uh, the trick is, how do you, how do you put it in its, in its place? And one of the things is you consciously think, this is what it wants, and it's stupid. Mm-hmm. And am I going to let this stupid thing rule my life. Uh, So with respect to social relationships, uh, just basically be kind, be a good listener, uh, do the right thing. Uh, If you're in an agreement with somebody else, uh, take steps to see that they get the better end of the deal. You know, you do what you can. And there will be some people who won't be impressed by that. You know, I don't know. But if that isn't enough, then I don't know. I don't know what else there is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Back to the um, discussion about desires, um, you mentioned earlier that a lot of the desires that we have, we don't manufacture them, we don't produce them, we discover them, or they happen to us. So if it's something that we really don't have too much control, A, in terms of what those desires are, and B, in terms of actually gaining a control over them, what are we supposed to do when they happen to us? Like we know in our mind that perhaps this is a bad desire to have because it might wreak havoc uh, in our lives. But mm-hmm. emotionally, um, we still really want it because somehow it just pleases us. It makes us really happy or we think it might make us really happy. When there's yeah. that battle between the mind and the emotions, for example. Because you yep. talked about that in your book, right? Yep. So one thing is to tra- trace the desire back to its uh, its source. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, f- I know in my case, a lot of times I can uh, trace it back and I realize, oh, somebody with a product to sell can make a good living if I buy this. And that person has put this seed of desire in my brain. But that seed is like a weed. Mm. And I can, I can uh, water it, fertilize it, and help it grow by by dwelling on it. There are cases where somebody will wake up one morning with no intent to buy a new car. Mm -hmm. And yet by the end of the day, you know, they see an ad in a newspaper, they start looking, and then by the end of the day, they've convinced themselves that not just that they want a car, but the way they people put it is, I need a new car. Yeah. And they'll start talking down, um, their uh, their old car and complaining and everything else. So that's a kind of a rational approach. Just mm-hmm. say to yourself in detective style, what is the source of this desire? Is this a need that's arising out of me and my long-term goal of equanimity, which is kind of the overriding long-term goal? Mm-hmm. Or is it something else? Uh, 
the desire to win other people's praise or mm-hmm. to avoid their uh, their disapproval. That's that's another one of these things. And then you know you have this uh, question: Do I really want to give other people that much control mm-hmm. over how I live my life? I have one life to live, mm-hmm. and these people, a lot of them, are not very thoughtful individuals. Mm-hmm. They're just playing the game they're stuck in. Mm-hmm. They're buying fancy cars. How come? Well, because they're playing the social status game and that gets you points. I'm not playing that game. And it's okay with me if they play that game, but I refuse to play that game because I don't think it's a very good game. So, um, there. But, but this is you taking a rational approach to it. And uh, now, uh, you know, I, I don't go around mocking people for what they, uh, what they want. Uh, but I know that if I want to impress them, I'm just doing it wrong, <laughs> way wrong. And that's okay, because that's a small price to pay to be able to live the life that I want to live and the life that I think in the long run is going to give me the best uh, level of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. What if it's something more irrational? The example that you gave, like you said, you can trace it back to, oh, this is what's really happening. That's driving me to have this desire. But what if it's something really irrational that you really can't justify to other people, but it just to you, it feels like you have to have it. That's not a desire, then that's an obsession, which is in a different uh, category. I'm, I'm, I'm using the words, I'm, so I'm distinguishing between mm-hmm. uh, those two. And... Uh, you know, it's a sign that your mind has completely capitulated to your heart and your gut. They have won. They have won the day. What do you and, do? And, you know, they don't fight fair either because what they'll do, I mean, it's like a classic example is falling in love, right? It just makes no sense at all. No. Uh, <laughs> and you don't get to choose who, you, you know, it happens with. And But that's uh, dangerous, right? What if it's somebody... That's really bad for you, for example. Yep. And you know, for that, example, then what do you do, right? Yeah. It's it's really, uh, really tough. And, of course, you're wired to pick out your partner for all the wrong reasons, right? <laughs> well, he's tall. Okay. What, oh, and the blue eyes. Well, you know, of, of, things, uh, of things that matter. So you, you do your best given the, the situation. Uh, so I have uh, fallen in love and it has been uh, enormously rewarding and beneficial to me, uh, my growth as a, as a, a, a human being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet I look around me and I see all of the people who are scarred, horribly scarred because of their choice. So uh, I, it's partly luck. Uh, maybe there's an element of skill there of saying, you know what, besides the package, I got to look at what's inside the package. You know, are there basic traits? Is this a kind person? Is this a trustworthy person? Is this a loyal person? Um, is this a person that I have shared interest with? Is this a person I can play with? You know, I, I, I now think the play element is really, really important. Uh, and, uh, uh, because there are a lot of people who have are married to people and they have very, very little common in, ground, common interests. Mm-hmm. So they live parallel lives instead yeah. of kind of intermeshed lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, it's, it's 
hard. And I don't know whether I'm I'm a good person to give advice on this because I've only, <laughs> I've only, uh, uh, you know, it, I once w- and I was done, you know. So uh, <laughs> lucky you. <laughs> yeah, but it would be it would be really hard, it, you know. And I, I guess I remember that you have so many choices. And yet, you know, after that initial contact, uh, it depends on what the two, it, it, it's it's a plant that's growing. And if both sides are working hard, it's going to happen. Uh, if both sides are giving 110%, that's heaven on earth. If one side is giving 110% and the other is giving 90%, ooh, <laughs> that's the road to emotional bankruptcy right there. So... So I'll try to apply some rationality to those very obsessive desires. Yeah, at that point, and I get I do get emails from people who describe a situation like that. So my basic uh, bit of advice is you need to see a therapist. And the first direction I would uh, head them toward is uh, a therapist who does CBT. That's cognitive behavioral therapy which has its roots deep in, in Stoicism. Uh, Donald Robertson, who's uh, also a, a, a writes books on Stoicism, is a cognitive behavioral therapist as well. So what they do, and they spend, um, they learn how to do it well, is uh, they attempt to trigger your, the rational part of your brain. Uh, you know, oh, you have a fear. So let's explore that fear, you know, and so it works with fears, works with obsessions Uh, at some level, uh, you know, an obsession. I don't even know if a talking cure can work. uh, And that's unfortunate. Uh, Sounds really dangerous, obsessions. Yeah. So no, some are deadly. Uh, Some obsessions are uh, are deadly, which is scary. Deadly not only for the person who has them, but for the people around them. Think of a stalker. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I, I can just think of so many movies when you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That end really badly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the good life. There were so many things that was mentioned in the book, but one thing that really stood out to me is the importance to maintain good relations with others, even right. for people who you know we don't like or we find them annoying. Right. Talk a little bit about why it's important to maintain good relations as uh, a main pillar to leading a good life and about the strategies of how to do that with people that you don't particularly mesh well with. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, my, my, my one-liner is, uh, you know, people uh, can't live without them, but they can be really annoying to live with. And so <laughs> uh, our, our job is to, is to try to put the two of those uh two of those together. I also yeah. uh, like to refer to vitamin P. Vitamin P is people. Uh, <laughs> to be healthy, you need them in your life. So if you yeah. just simply say, well, there's they're such trouble that I'm not going to deal with them, that's bad news for you. In the long run, uh, you will uh, you'll suffer as a result. Uh, back to evolutionary uh, psychology, our ancestors who are happy living alone perished. They dropped out of the... Uh, evolutionary equation because that was in a time when you needed friends you needed um, people who would uh, who would help you um, so uh, uh, one thing uh, I've learned is that uh, it's possible to be allergic to another person and that is <laughs> that encounters with them you're going to walk away feeling upset feeling angry feeling bad about yourself and so then it's like uh, 
uh, it's a human form of poison ivy. If you mess with it, it's your own fault. You know, you should have seen it coming. So you go into a kind of a, an avoidance strategy. Now, some people can't do that because the person they're allergic to is their boss at work. You know, yeah. the person is a, is a monster. Um, and so I don't have uh, good, I've, I've not been in that situation. So I don't have uh, good advice. Uh, also, another bit of advice is uh, if uh, someone uh, that you deal with routinely is despicable, don't tell them that because <laughs> uh, then it's it's open warfare after that. But you 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 simply um, do your best not to encounter him. And if you do encounter, you just simply listen quietly to what they have to say and then come up with some reason. Uh, to, to, to have to be somewhere else. Yeah, I have to go shampoo my cat now. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever thing. Yeah. So uh, it, it is a tricky thing. It's important that they be part of your life and yet they can be toxic within mm. your life. And so it's finding that, that happy balance between the two. I think it was um, Marcus Aurelius who mentioned that we have a duty to be good to our fellow men yep. and women. Even for people that may be toxic to us or don't share our values, why is that so important? Why can we just dismiss them and never talk to them again? <laughs> yeah, uh, because some people uh, you can't help with what with what you've the got. Circumstance, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole the whole notion of social duty, and I believe as a Stoic, I've got a social duty. But if you actually read the Stoics, you just find it popping out of nowhere. And Marcus Aurelius, in particular, of I've got a duty to help all these other people. Are living really terrible lives because they are operating under a number of misconceptions. So, you know what, I can help them. So let me help them. And uh, as a Stoic, uh, I don't lecture. Uh, I don't force my books on people. But if I get a chance to uh, get in a little bit of Stoic advice, I just, in, a, in the subtlest possible way, I do. You know, somebody will say, you know, I got this situation, blah, blah, blah. Ah, well, you know, there's part of it you can't control. So just go with the flow on that and spend this energy thinking about the part you can control or have some control over. And so how can you make it turn out best? That's stoicism right there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I don't I don't lecture people. People stop talking to you. Yeah, you, be, you become their yeah. poison ivy, right? And they start uh, <laughs> they start avoiding you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it is. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult being a human being. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I will, uh, you know, people will say, okay, so-and-so did such and such and such. And then, you know, first level is that's just who that person is. And at some level, they can't help being that way, the way you can't help being the way you are. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, with effort, they can probably change the way they are, but they have to, it has to be conscious effort, has to be ongoing uh, ongoing effort. Uh, so the whole social duty thing. So there are some people you can't help. They're mm -hmm. just, there's nothing you can do that will make a difference. So Marcus Aurelius would also have said, you know what, if you can't make a difference, then you're foolish to be spending your time uh, doing that. Um, you know, we have relatives who are going to be our relatives forever because that's how the relatives work. And yet some of them can be quite annoying people. And yet, uh, so what do you do? You just uh, maintain uh, some kind of relationship and uh, 
And then, then it becomes this kind of practice of, okay, I know I'm going to be encountering X today. I know X is going to go on at length about something that uh, I don't agree with. And I know that nothing I uh, say uh, can uh, affect uh, his thinking. So what am I going to do? Well, it's going to be for me a kind of game. Uh, let's see how long I can avoid having the annoyance sink in, right? Mm-hmm. How long can I have it be like water on a duck's back? Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and, and you might say, but that's not, you should be treating him with respect. Okay, he's making it really hard because he won't listen. You know, yeah. I, I can't, can't do anything with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are good advice. <laughs> yeah. So for you today, um, how would you rate yourself as a stoic? I'm an aspiring Stoic. Uh, I'm a practicing Stoic because I do, uh, you know, I do make a point on ongoing basis of thinking about what I'm doing from a Stoic perspective, mm-hmm. thinking about where I'm falling short, thinking about what I could do. So I'm a practicing Stoic. Am I a perfect Stoic? No way. Mm-hmm. I am not. And, you know, they talk about, uh, the Stoics themselves talk about the ideal Stoic and s- such a such a being doesn't exist. It's, it's an exemplar. It's something we can look at and we can imagine. That's what we want to move toward. That's the goal. But unfortunately, we're all wired to be human beings. And, uh, and like I said, it's difficult to be a human being. And it's difficult to be a stoic human being. So it's <laughs> going to take active effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's see. On a scale 1 to 10, I might give myself an 8. I don't know. I see. Okay. All right. But you would encourage more people to look into it, wouldn't you? Yes, because it's got a low price of admission. You can test drive it mm-hmm. on a three-day weekend, and you will know by the end of that what the basic principles are, and you'll know whether it's going to make a difference in your life or not. Some people just come to it very naturally. And some people, you know, if you have deep-seated anxieties, it probably isn't going to work for you. But it's worth a, worth a, a chance uh, you can also do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to shave your head or wear robes or anything like that. You just try using some of the basic uh, techniques. And uh, and it, you can be what I call a stealth stoic. Mm. You're doing it. You're practicing it, but you're not making a big deal out of it. And then if it doesn't work, eh, nobody's, nobody's any the wiser. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Irvin. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. That was American philosopher Dr. William Irvin. The two books we discussed today are On Desire and A Guide to the Good Life, which you can find on his website, williambirvin.com. You've been listening to Wiser Living with CC Wong. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Google and give it a rating so more people can know about it. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues about it. I'd really appreciate it if you can help get the word out there about Wiser Living so more people can benefit from the insights we share on the show. Thank you so much for your support as always, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.